The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The 19th century black abolitionist Frederick Douglass is everywhere these days. If you Google his name, you get 33 million results. There are Frederick Douglass elementary schools and high schools all over the place. There are statues of Frederick Douglass in many places, including the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. That statute was unveiled in 2013 after being approved by the Senate. There's a Frederick Douglass Boulevard in Manhattan. It's 8th Avenue, north of 110th Street in Harlem. And, of course, at that Black History Month event last year at the White House, Donald Trump said, quote, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is getting recognized more and more, I notice, close quote. For more on that 19th century black abolitionist, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he's the award-winning historian of the Reconstruction era. He's written many books most recently, Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. He also wrote The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. It won the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Bancroft Prize. He's on the nation's editorial board. He writes for the New York Times, the London Review, and the Nation. We reach him today in Manhattan. Eric Foner, welcome back. Nice to talk to you, John. Well, there was a time when Frederick Douglass was not praised by the president of the United States as, quote, somebody who's done an amazing job. Not so long ago, only a tiny number of white people even knew who he was. Uh, yes, that is certainly true. Um, you know, I think back to my uh, high school history education in Long Beach, Long Island, and um the textbook that we used didn't even mention Frederick Douglass. Of course, it didn't mention any black people, basically. But, um, you know, in the black community, Douglass was always known and admired and revered. Most of the people who wrote about him until mid-20th century were African-American writers of one kind or another. But, uh, you know, black history was ignored, and slavery was basically ignored, and the abolitionist movement was considered at that time a kind of group of fanatics who brought on a needless war. So... Douglas was just sort of dismissed along with all the rest of them. The civil rights era, of course, led to a rediscovery of Douglas. But before then, starting in 1950, I, I will say, as a family thing, my uncle Philip Foner published four volumes of Douglas's uh, great writings and speeches, editorials. You know, he was a newspaper editor, Douglas, and uh, really began to put Douglas on the map uh, by doing that. So, um, it's great that President Trump, who doesn't appear to know much about American history, has heard of Frederick Douglass. It's unclear whether he thinks he's still alive or not, but, um, you know, you take what you can get. Well, let's talk about Frederick Douglass's political ideas. They, they changed over the years. If we, if we start, I don't know, in the early 1850s, when the big question for the abolitionist movement was how to abolish slavery, uh, Douglass famously said, quote, I have no country, close quote. What did he mean? Douglas started out after, of course, he was born a slave. He escaped around age 20. He got to the north. Uh, that was a very dangerous thing to do. And for about 10 years, he was in danger of being captured and sent back until his freedom was purchased by a group of abolitionists for him. 
But um, he was a Garrisonian, a follower at that point of William Lloyd Garrison, the white abolitionist, who basically said, you know, the Constitution is pro-slavery. We should, in fact, break up the Union, he said, that the North is complicit with this evil institution of slavery. And um, Douglas followed him and uh, said, you know, I have no country means I am not recognized as an American in the country of my birth. And, of course, not long after that, the Supreme Court in Dred Scott ruled that no black person, free or slave, could be a citizen. And that sort of underscored Douglass's point. But by the 1850s, as your question sort of indicates, he was changing. He developed a different view of the Constitution. He, he saw it uh, as uh, opening the door to certain kinds of anti-slavery activity, particularly what actually happened in the 1850s, barring slavery from spreading into the West. He thought that abolitionists should take part in the political process rather than just rejecting it the way uh, Garrison uh, wanted them to. Yeah, he changed his mind, but, you know, in the greatest crisis in American history, the coming of the Civil War, the Civil War, just about everybody changed their mind uh, in some way. If, uh, in fact, if you didn't, there was probably something wrong with you. Lincoln did the same thing, of course, changing his mind about how to deal with slavery a number of times during his career. And then the war came, and then the war was over. And what what did Frederick Douglass think federal policy should be after the war towards the former slaves? I know he's been criticized for emphasizing what he called self-reliance rather than aggressive government action. Yes, Douglass believed in self-reliance. That is, you know, that's a 19th century idea, that people should rely on their own efforts to get ahead. After all, he was a perfect example of that. He's born a slave and nobody helped him, you know, I mean, a few people helped him escape, but it was through his own diligence and effort and self-education that he became a, you know, great spokesman. But at the same time, he said, yeah, there should be, we should rely on ourselves, but it has to be a level playing field. And therefore, the federal government has to intervene dramatically to create equality, to create, in a sense, equal laws, equal treatment, protect black people from violence. You know, the Ku Klux Klan was uh, active at this time. Once you get a level playing field like that, which of course has never existed for African Americans down to the present day, then you can talk about self-reliance. So yes, he think people should become dependent on government assistance. Uh, he thought that was bad for your character. But uh, certainly the way certain conservatives today, Clarence Thomas has done this, for example, pull out his statement, don't do anything for us, just leave us alone, to suggest that Douglas was really a kind of modern-day conservative is just a misreading of the history. What's relevant to the moment is he had a vision of what he called a composite nation. He welcomed immigration. He said the Chinese, who were despised at that time, we should welcome them. We should give them the right to vote. This is a country for everybody in the world who loves liberty. We shouldn't be barring foreigners who want to come to the United States. That was a pretty remarkable thing to be saying in 1869 when he yeah. gave his composite nation speech. And uh, today it resonates, obviously. You said Douglas was uh, a great orator of the 19th century. And of course, oratory was the major medium of communication along with newspapers in the 19th century. My favorite Frederick Douglass speech alongside the composite nation speech that you've already talked about is his speech about the 4th of July. We still run it in the Nation magazine, I think, every year. Remind us what he said about the 4th of July. Douglass says the United States, through slavery, is guilty of crimes that would disgrace a nation of savages. Hmm. 
Douglas's Fourth of July speech is a is a critique of hypocrisy. He says, you know, this is a day when white people get together and celebrate liberty, equality, democracy, and yet at that point there were over three million slaves in the United States. To to slaves, the Fourth of July is a repudiation of the reality of American life. And yet, at the very end of the speech, he turns it around and says, you know, actually the slaves are the truest Americans, because it's only the slaves who believe in universal liberty, which is what the revolution was supposed to be based on. White people have abandoned that, but uh, it's the slaves who are carrying on the tradition of the American Revolution through their desire for freedom. So it's a it's a brilliantly constructed and powerful speech, and yes, it, it ought to be read um, over and over again. You also say in your piece on Frederick Douglass for the nation that he was the most photographed American of the 19th century. Why was that? Well, you know, I didn't realize that until, uh, you know, I, I was writing about David Blight's new biography of Frederick Douglass, an excellent book, and he makes this point. Douglass wanted to be photographed. He wanted his image to be out there. He, he knew, he thought about the presentation of yourself. He thought about the caricatures of blacks, which were rampant in um, newspaper cartoons and, and other kinds of imagery. Blacks as savages, blacks as stupid, you know, and incompetent, and or animals. He took command of his photographs. I mean, he was dignified. He was he was someone you could admire in the photograph. He insisted that that was how he wanted to be projected, to sh- to counteract the demeaning images of blacks that were all over the place. Douglas was very, very conscious of how the media spread certain ideas about blacks, and he wanted to uh, try to counteract that. You write in The Nation, we find ourselves today in a political moment that Douglas, in his later years, would have recognized. What do you have in mind? Well, in his, as he was pretty old, by the 1890s, Douglas was observing the retreat, the strong retreat from the ideals of the abolitionists, the ideals of Reconstruction. The Constitution had been amended, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, to create equality before the law for blacks, the right to vote for black men, and yet that was all being taken away by the Supreme Court and by state governments in the South, in the Jim Crow system. And he was out fighting. He, he was still, he was pretty old, but he was out there speaking and denouncing the Supreme Court for their retrograde uh, decisions and uh, denouncing lynching, which was becoming very widespread in the 1890s. What I mean by saying we would recognize, Douglas would recognize our moment because we are in a moment, as is obvious, where rights that were taken for granted seem to be under attack again, including the right to vote, which yeah. he was, they were talking about in the 1890s. Progress is not unilinear. It's not always going forward. Sometimes things go backward. And Douglas was living in a time when things were going backward, and so are we, I'm sorry to say. And what was his message? It was to keep fighting. It was to agitate. It was to keep uh, true to your own values. Douglas, in in his great uh, speech before the war, 1857, he said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And uh, we can learn from that. You know, even at that dire time, Douglas didn't give up. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Eric Foner wrote about Frederick Douglass for the fall books issue of The Nation. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Eric. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, John. Thank you.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.